This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How do you know you're not being poisoned? Your friends and family are all smiling kindly at you. How do you know one of them isn't trying to murder you? And of course, you didn't know. You didn't know. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. A wealthy man is poisoned in 1830s England, and there are many suspects, including several heirs. Will coffee grounds prove to be crucial evidence in a murder case that helped change forensics? Sandra Hempel, in her book, The Inheritor's Powder, tells us the story of a determined chemist who shifted the outcome of a historic case. Will you just set the scene for me of where you want to start the story? Where are we? What's the time period like? Politics, all of that for context. Right. The time context is, as you said, it's a really fascinating time. It's just before the beginning of the Victorian era. Um, Victoria came to the throne in 1837. So the king on the throne at the time was William IV, her uncle, who is largely unknown. Uh, We go normally from the Georgians to the Victorians and everyone forgets about poor old William stuck in the middle. Uh, (laughs) But that was the case. Um, It was a strange time, really. There was a lot going on in terms of unrest, political unrest, particularly in the countryside, which is where this story is set, in terms of of the criminal justice system, which this story is concerned with, there's a big hangover from, from Georgian times, a lot of reforms that were going to come in to the way crimes were investigated and way trials were organized had yet to come in. So in some ways, you know, they were stuck in a bit of a time warp at that point. Catch me up on where we were in forensics, in the world of forensics in this time period. In this time period in the United States, it was really investigations boiled down to the third degree, you know, the police just cajoling people and abusing people until they confessed. There was little in the way of of anything in any kind of investigator could gather and be used in court. Was it like that in Britain in this time period? Yes, absolutely. There was no such thing as, uh, you know, a detective in those days. It was well before the profession of detective existed. And so the whole thing was really a bit of a mess in that a magistrate might get involved in investigating a suspected case. And then there was the coroner involved if someone had died. And the police um, usually you know, there, there was no, as you say, forensic science of any kind, no proper investigation, no rules about how you went about investigating. And so it 
was a complete mess, actually, and just down to luck, whether, in fact, the crime got investigated in the first place, actually. Sometimes it just didn't. There were no protocols to follow. Quite often, what would happen if somebody was thought that somebody had been murdered, the local doctor would be called in. But usually, I mean, they knew nothing whatsoever about how to go about investigating at all. They knew nothing about trying to preserve the evidence. So again, you know, we were just in the hands of complete amateurs bumbling around and and nobody properly taking control of what was happening. Now, I've done some stories set in the 1700s where doctors have been able to identify victims of poison only based on their physical appearance, like a blackened face. Is that true here? Where are we with toxicology in 1833? Can they find out anything? No, I mean, we're not anywhere with toxicology. I mean, the science, the modern science of toxicology just didn't exist. Obviously, they had no way of investigating other than, as you say, they would just look for signs on the body. They would also look at the circumstances in which someone had died to see whether it was likely that they might have been poisoned. But I mean, the case was, the suspicion was, and in fact, the fact was that an awful lot of cases of poison were just not recognised as being a criminal poison. It wasn't recognised as if it had been murder, that it was murder. And lots of cases were put down to natural disease. Which there were a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. There was a lot, absolutely, because hygiene was absolutely appalling and non-existent. And so people would go down with food poisoning and they would regard it very much as we might nowadays regard going down with cold. You know, you just, it was just one of those things. And, and you, you waited and hoped that you would get better. But apart from food poisoning, there was dysentery, there was typhoid, those kinds of diseases that affect the digestion and stomach. Hmm. Very, very difficult not to confuse all of those diseases with uh, criminal poisoning or any kind of poisoning, you know, really, because sometimes people did take poison, particularly arsenic by accident. There were dreadful stories about um, arsenic being left around in a packet and children getting hold of it, thinking it was sherbet or sugar or something and and taking it by mistake. Because particularly arsenic was very widely used, right? Was it used for killing rats? That was one of its usefulnesses, right? Absolutely. And and that's all they had. You know, there was lots of, again, because of the conditions of the people we're living in, there were rats and mice everywhere. And there were also bugs as well. You know, there were things like cockroaches, bed bugs, fleas. And so it worked as an insecticide as well. People would wash floors and bedding and that sort of thing down down with arsenic. And and it was all they had. And it was very cheap because it was like a sort of byproduct of some of the processes of the Industrial Revolution. You could buy it over the counter with no questions asked, really. One of the things that I think is the strength of the many strengths of your book is that it is nonfiction and it reads like a mystery novel. Those are my favorite kinds of books, and I try to write those types of books, and you you did it so well here. So let's start with the mystery. Start where it makes sense to you. I always want to hear, of course, as much about the victim as possible, but where do we start to really unravel this? Just to set 
the background. I mean, thank you so much, first of all, for saying that it read like a murder mystery story, because that was exactly how I tried to write it. I love those kind of books too. So thank you. Thank you for your kind words about that. The story itself is a sort of classical murder mystery set in an English village. The crime was motivated by greed, and it was carried out with horrible callousness. The killer appeared to be a member of the victim's close family. Although several people had a motive, as some of them had behaved very suspiciously, it was hard to imagine, really, that any of them had the sort of psychopathic personality that really, I think, was needed for this crime. And the murder scene was a large house belonging to an elderly, wealthy farmer. George Bogle was an 81-year-old patriarch. He was the head of a large extended family, and he was a highly respected local figure, been a church warden for many years. And he was a member of the vestry committee, which was the local authority that ran the parish. And they dealt with important matters such as setting the local taxes. So um, he was quite a, a figure of some distinction. He was also a very shrewd businessman. Um, he started out as a tenant farmer with just a small parcel of land, but he gradually acquired more and more fields and orchards, and he built up large herds of cattle and pigs. He and his wife, Anne, lived a very simple, thrifty and really God-fearing life following the old country ways. And the residents of Plumstead, they were the local village worthies, really, such as the vicar of the local church, the magistrate. And being an English village, although it was a tiny village, there were three pubs. <laughs> it's very typical. You do mention at some point that the parish constables are known for being inebriated. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's a wonderful story of the um, policeman who was sent to investigate this murder and was sent to search someone's house. And he came away with the evidence, two packets of arsenic. But on his way back to the station, he went on a pub crawl. Of course. <laughs> and he said that he was sheltering from the rain, but he managed to, in the rain, go to three different pubs where he started <laughs> handing round the packets of arsenic, showing his drinking mates. Uh. <laughs> Somebody spilt the contents of one packet down their trousers. <laughs> yeah, and he eventually, the policeman eventually staggered back to hand in what remained of this evidence. Oh, he also had a bottle of something which he thought contained arsenic. He managed to drop that on the pub floor and break it. Oh. <laughs> so this is the kind of standard of police and the standard of investigation that we're dealing with here. That's helpful in your story, I think. And we, we get back to Plumstead. So churches and pubs and George Bodle and his wife, Anne, very wealthy, but not flashy. And they just seem to have a nice, big extended family, mm -hmm. but everything is calm, not as much drama as we would expect in a murder story, at least on the onset. That's right. I mean, I thought it was quite a coincidence that the story really begins on the morning of November the 2nd, which is All Souls Day, which is also known as the Day of the Dead. So I thought that was quite appropriate, really. And um, it began, the drama began just after breakfast. And George and Anne and their daughter Elizabeth, who was on a visit, and granddaughter Betsy, who lived with them, and a maid called Sophia were all suddenly taken violently ill with vomiting and diarrhea. And as we've already said, at that time, this wasn't 
unusual. They just waited to get better. But as the day passed on, they didn't get at all better. Their symptoms were particularly severe. And so they sent for the doctor. The doctor, nearest doctor, was in a town, Woolwich, which was a mile or so away. A man called John Butler was called out and he arrived on his pony and trap and he began examining the patients. But as he asked them, he was asking them about their symptoms. And as you said, you know, would, would be examining their bodies for any particular signs. But he also asked them about how they became ill and when they became ill. He was particularly astute, actually, because not a lot of doctors would have necessarily picked up on this. But he thought this was rather odd, this story. He thought it didn't fit with the normal onset of an outbreak of food poisoning. For a start, everybody became ill very violently, very suddenly at the same time and immediately after having breakfast. And there was nothing that they'd had at breakfast, which seems obvious cause of, you know, food poisoning. I think mostly they just had bread or toast and they didn't all have the same thing. The only thing that they did all have was coffee. So it's unlikely that coffee would give you food poisoning. So he decided that this was much more like an attack from an irritant poison of some kind. The top of his list of likely poisons was arsenic. What surprised me, actually, when I was looking into arsenic and just what it was, was that the metallic element arsenic, which is, is a grey metal, isn't poisonous at all. If it passes through your body in its pure form, it's the compound, which is called arsenic trioxide, which in the 19th century was known as white arsenic, that most of us mean when we talk about arsenic. And this is a very, very different matter. It's horribly deadly in very small doses. And as we've discussed, you know, it was it was cheaply and widely available. So Dr. Butler is looking at, you know, these three, what's the age range of Elizabeth, Betsy, and Sophia? Are they all? Betsy is, I think, 16. Elizabeth is middle-aged and Anne is 80 or same age as George. Okay. And Sophia? Sophia, uh, I think about 18. So Dr. Butler examines them and says, this is strange. They didn't even digest the food, you know, so that it couldn't have been the food. And he's looking at the coffee. Does he think that this is nefarious, that there's murderous intent here initially? Or did he think some bad accident happened with a household poison? He didn't say. He didn't say. We don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine that it would be by accident, really, because it's powder sometimes, arsenic powder was sometimes mistaken for sugar. But he seemed to think that the coffee pot was the key thing. So as I say, it's hard. I guess he was probably reserving judgment, but um, it's hard to know. He was sufficiently concerned that he sent the cleaning lady who came every day, he sent her rushing around to her daughter's cottage because Every day when they finished drinking their coffee, they would give the coffee pot with the used grounds in the bottom to Mrs. Lear. She would go round to her daughter's house. Her daughter lived in a nearby cottage. Daughter had a very large family, I think 10 children, and was in extreme poverty. And such was the poverty that they would take this coffee pot, they would fill it up again with water, 
and boil it up and make a hot drink from the children mm. from these weak coffee grounds, coffee grounds that had already been used. So that was the scale of the poverty of some people in the countryside at that time. When John Butler heard that this coffee pot, oh, well, it's gone round to this woman with her children, he sent Mrs. Lear rushing back to the cottage to grab the coffee pot. And she managed to take it just as one of the children was about to um, fill it up with water, put it on the stove, and they were all going to drink it. So that's one of the things I mean when I said how callous this murderer was because they must have known that that was what happened. But Anne and George are not affected by this this time, is that right? No, they are. They were all ill. George was much more ill than the others because he drank more coffee than anyone else had. And he was 81 also. He was. He was. Anne was quite old, though. I think she was 79, I believe. But she had a tiny, tiny cup of coffee to his large cup. But when Dr. Butler gets there, they're all still alive, is that right? They are all still alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. They are all still alive, just very sick. He does the classic thing of giving them things to, you know, make them sick. I mean, the favourites were salt water and also they would actually make people drink oil. I know, I know. (laughs) After that, over the next few days, he visits every day and continues to try to treat them. And very, very gradually, the women start to get better. George doesn't. He continues very ill. And eventually, on the 5th of November, he dies, having suffered really, really badly. And obviously, by then, everybody is thinking, what on earth has gone on here? And events actually then start to move quite fast. Some very odd things happen. One of the people who come under suspicion in the family is this 23-year-old man who's known as Young John. His father is known as Middle John. Young John lives with his older brother and his mother and father and a maid called Mary Higgins. And they live in a cottage on George Bodle's land. A couple of mornings before the family gets sick, Young John suddenly appears one morning at the farmhouse early morning as Sophia, the maid, is getting the breakfast ready. And he says, oh, I've come to give you a hand, which is very odd. He's never done that before. He normally stays in bed till about midday. And he helps her. One of the things he does is to fill a huge kettle from the tap in the yard and bring it in and put it over the fire. He's there again on the morning that everyone feels ill. When George dies, he then, within a few hours of George dying, he leaves Plumstead and he goes off to southeast London to a place called Clerkenwell, where his older married sister runs a coffee shop and he goes to stay with her, absents himself from the, from the area. Hmm. His father, Middle John, then goes to see the magistrate and says, oh, I suspect that my son is guilty of poisoning his grandfather. Wow, okay. Which is a very odd, extraordinary thing to do. He also brings along the maid, Mary Higgins. He's rumoured, it's quite well known in the village, that the pair are having an affair. He produces Mary Higgins before the magistrate, and Mary Higgins recounts a story about how she quite recently heard young John boasting 
that he was making a joke of the fact that it would be a really good idea if he killed his grandfather and then his father, and then he would be able to inherit lots of money. So Mary Higgins recounts this. Then somebody else, and we don't know who this is, but someone else also goes to the magistrate and said, you need to have a word with young John's friend, schoolmaster called John Watts. John Watts has got something to tell you. So the magistrate sends for John Watts and John Watts says, well, I went into town with young John a couple of days ago and he bought two packets of arsenic Hmm. while I was with him. The magistrate issues a warrant for young John's arrest and he sends PC Morris of the um, pub crawl fame off to Clerkenwell to arrest young John and bring him back to Plumstead in handcuffs, which he does. Young John is obviously very much under suspicion of murder and they have an inquest. And the inquest goes on for five days, which is absolutely extraordinary because, you know, a a coroner could get through about two or three inquests a day. They would just whiz through them. But this one went into the most incredible amount of interviews with people and had masses and masses of witnesses It caught somehow the imagination of the public. I suppose it was because it was a very wealthy man and because one of the people under suspicion was his grandson. So it really caught the press's imagination and the public's. And so it made national news headlines for days. What does young John have to say about any of this? He's denying everything, I'm assuming. He's denying absolutely everything. And he's saying that he he did indeed buy packets of arsenic. And indeed, PC Morris found them in his bedroom when he went to search the cottage. But he says he bought them as a skin treatment. And that was one of the things arsenic was used for. There were advertisements in the papers saying, if you want a beautiful complexion, you know, buy our arsenic lotion. (laughs) You know, it was used for um, acne. And he said, you know, he had this suffered with this acne and he was um, in the habit of, of treating it with arsenic. Does Sophia, the housekeeper who says that, you know, he came and helped that morning with the water that would be for the coffee, does she have any thoughts on any of this? I know she said it was odd, but is she suspicious of young John? She doesn't seem to be. She liked him a lot. And he was very charming by all accounts. He was an extremely charming young man. He was very friendly, very approachable. Everyone liked him. She was in the habit of, I think, sort of flirting with him mildly whenever they they met. She certainly wasn't setting out like some of the others to try to um, put a noose around his neck, as his father appeared to be doing. coroner did decide that young John should be charged with murder, that he should stand trial for the murder of his grandfather, at which young John goes completely to pieces and uh, is, is sort of fainting and weeping and on the point of collapse. John Butler actually, I think, goes to see him and says, come on, you know, it'll be all right, just pull yourself together, stick with it. So they then have this trial at the Crown Court. All of this stuff about Middle John's bizarre behaviour, Mary Higgins' bizarre behaviour all comes out. It also transpires that old George's son-in-law, Samuel Baxter, who's another local farmer who, who married George's daughter, took old George 
to the solicitors just days before he fell ill. And George changed his will massively in favor of Samuel and Samuel's family. Wow. This comes out during the inquest or when does this come out? That comes out just before, actually, but I think it does come out in the inquest. But I think there's been some kind of rumors, stories circulating in the village before that. Does Anne know this? We don't know whether Anne knows that, actually. Anne is a very strange character because there's not a lot on record about Anne, what she says. I mean, there's one point when young John is taken to see her and she obviously is extremely fond of him. And I think doesn't want to see him prosecuted. But apart from that, we don't know a huge amount about her. She seems to be sort of quietly there in the background. I mean, George doesn't seem to have had a lot of time for young John. I'm not surprisingly, really, because George being such a hard working man and such a self-made man doesn't have a lot of time for young John, who, you know, stays in bed half the morning, is supported largely by his father, is supposed to do labouring work on the farm, but actually most of the time dodges off and really has to be chased to do any work and spends, you know, is mainly interested in buying clothes and looking good. Flirting with housekeepers and stuff. Exactly. And generally sort of playing the gentleman, which is the kind of behaviour that George would have had not a lot of time for. So I don't think they got on particularly well. But this would also have been behaviour that would have irritated middle John, I'm assuming. And do we think that might be a little bit behind his bizarre accusation and this arrest that has happened based on, you know, the purchase of a commonly available poison and the word of a father and sort of the odd nature of a surprise visit from, you know, young John to Sophia, the housekeeper. And that's it, right? Do they have anything else on this guy? No, they don't have anything else. I mean, that that time, you often didn't need anything else. And the trials were a day. <laughs> the trials lasted a nanosecond. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and if you had a motive and you had opportunity, then that was enough quite often to hang you. The defense relied very heavily. As you said, first of all, this is circumstantial. But secondly, why would this father go to the magistrate and try to get his son hanged. The implication was that he, Middle John, was guilty. So therefore, he was trying to, you know, get his son fingered for a crime that he himself had committed. If it were to be him, he couldn't have known about the trip Samuel Baxter taking his father to change the will because by the time George died, Baxter inherited most of George's wealth and George's property. How could they go through with a trial with young John with, I know it's actually, you're right, more evidence than they would have had in most cases in this time period, knowing that you have somebody, a son-in-law, who is going to inherit everything and the change just happened a few days before. How could they, in good conscience, not investigate that angle before putting young John on trial? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, it just, again, is another example of how badly these things were run privilege, right? Because I'm assuming Samuel was an upright citizen and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And a lot more stuff came out against Middle John at the trial, the defense. He'd had previous criminal convictions himself for theft and fraud Hmm. and had actually served some time in prison himself 
for crimes. So that didn't sort of go down too well with the jury. And then there were a whole load of character witnesses for young John. One after the other, people trooped into the witness box to say, you know, a lovely young man he was, and it's impossible to think that he could ever, ever have harmed anybody. And so he was found not guilty. And extraordinarily, when he came out of the court, a free man, the jury was outside in the street and they all cheered him as he came out. And then he got into this carriage and off he went back to Plumstead. And when he arrived at the other end, the villagers were all out cheering him and welcoming him home as a hero. So what happens three years after George is murdered? We meet a chemist, is that right, in 1836? We do. Actually, we meet the chemist at the trial in 1833 mm-hmm. because he's called as an expert witness. Again, expert witnesses in those days, if they were ever called, were very loosely described as experts. Quite often, again, it was one of those local doctors who'd been called in because someone died under suspicious circumstances and they would be expected to pronounce on what had happened. They had no training whatsoever. And most of the time, it was total hit and miss. I mean, there was one famous, well, not, I say famous case. It just happens to be on record. I'm sure there were loads of others where a local doctor was called in, apothecary was called in to say whether he thought this particular drink contained arsenic or not. A woman was standing trial for having killed her husband with arsenic. And this apothecary said, oh, yes, I've done a test and um, this drink was packed with arsenic. It turned out, and he was quite happily announced this in court, he'd never done the test before in his life. And he said, and to be honest with you, I really don't know very much at all about arsenic. I've never had anything (laughs) to do with it. This woman was still hanged for murder. That's the kind of level of competence, expertise, knowledge that you're dealing with here. But here they they have this expert witness and he is a lot better than most. They try originally to get Michael Faraday, who is the famous scientist who did all the work on electromagnetism because Faraday was working in the Woolwich Arsenal, which is a big sort of munitions factory down the road. Uh, He was uh, a professor there. He used to come and give a part-time professor, give lectures. They asked him, would he do these tests on George's stomach contents, on the coffee pot grounds, and also on the fresh coffee that was in the jar. And he says, no, I'm too busy. I can't take that on. But I recommend my assistant, this man called James Marsh. Marsh had not run the tests for arsenic before, but he was a very competent chemist. He was a a self-taught man, actually. He came from a very humble background. He left school at 12 went to work as a labourer at the Woolwich Arsenal, but he was very, very quickly came to people's notice there as being just a very, very naturally gifted chemist and engineer. And he was quickly taken out of being a labourer and put into the laboratory. And he was at that time working with Faraday. And uh, he ran these tests for the presence of arsenic. And he said he found no arsenic in the stomach contents. He found no arsenic in the fresh coffee, but he did find a lot of arsenic in the coffee grounds. Hmm. And he gave his evidence and off he went. But he was horrified at the rudimentary nature of the tests that were currently used 
for the presence of arsenic. I mean, one of them involved throwing the material that you thought contained arsenic onto a fire and sniffing to see if you could smell garlic because it was supposed to be the smell of garlic when it was heated. And if you could, then arsenic was present. And if you couldn't, it wasn't. And then there were some chemical tests which involved making a solution of the arsenic material and adding various chemicals and seeing whether the liquid changed colour. But it was incredible. It wasn't very clear at all. It wasn't that, you know, the liquid was yellow and it turned bright blue or anything like that. The colour changes were incredibly subtle. They were incredibly difficult to detect. And Marsh was just horrified by this. And so he, he went away and he quietly in his own time worked away at perfecting his own tests for the presence of arsenic. And it took him, as you say, three years. Uh, he finally published a paper on this and his test came at the problem from a completely different, a much more scientific angle. It was to do with heating up the arsenic. He invented some equipment, he designed some equipment to be used in the lab. And it was to do with heating up the arsenic, collecting a gas that it produced and really uh, vaporizing the extraneous material. And then you would finish up with the pure arsenic if arsenic was indeed present. That test actually, became, well, it became the gold standard and it stayed the gold standard right up until the 1970s, which is extraordinary. Wow. And when I was researching this book, and I spoke to one or two doctors about it, elderly men who'd long retired, two or three of them said, oh, I remember learning about the Marsh test at medical school. I remember them telling us about it, which was absolutely extraordinary considering that, you know, he did that in 1836. You're right. It's incredible. I mean, that the beginning of forensics, the beginning of any development of any forensics tool, there's so many mistakes. And one of my books is set in the 1920s, 1930s at Berkeley, which is sort of the beginning of forensics in the United States. Any new tool, they just treated forensic experts would sit on the stand and would just treat it as the definitive answer. This is the answer that I have come up with using this brand new tool. There is no wiggle room. It is the definitive answer. And we know now you can't say that anymore. But it sounds like Marsh had just intuitively invented something with staying power, which is very rare. So that's really an incredible character to have in a book. Actually, you're right. That's, that's absolutely correct. It is extraordinary that it wasn't overturned because, as you say, you know, these things are normally only amazing and groundbreaking revolutionary for a short period of time before they get overturned and something else, they're displaced by something else. Mm. That's normally the way it works. So, yes, it was. Absolutely. So Marsh, I'm assuming, is the one who has preserved this material. Did he keep the grounds, the coffee, and the stomach contents between that 1833 and 1836 when he developed the test? No, I don't think he necessarily, I don't think he used, there's no evidence to show that he actually used those samples. Okay. I think he much more likely he just made up some solutions of us with arsenic trioxide, uh, you know, and tested those, knowing that he had the arsenic, that they contained arsenic, but then worked on those to see whether he could then extract, get rid of all the rest of the material and be left with this pure arsenic. But in 1833, he tested the actual grounds using the old test. And he said that I have detected arsenic 
in the coffee grounds. So we think we know where this has come from. Is it somebody put it in the coffee? Yes, absolutely. Sounds like a housekeeper to me. Well, there you are. Absolutely. One thing I want to ask you about, you know, I often say about poisoners, poison seems like the ideal weapon. You don't have to be there. It's hands off. It might be harder to trace depending on where you are. Even now, they have to do individual tests. There's no one test where it's like, yes, it could be cyanide, it could be arsenic. But you actually have to know what you're doing, as I think we found out with this story, because if you don't give someone enough, they just get sick and they survive, which is what happened with the women. And if you give them too much, then you have the blackened face or corroded organs, and that's a red flag. So the most successful poisoners I've seen have been the doctors, the people who know how to do the dosage. Yes, yes. And also, I mean, one way of doing it, which was, again, in the 19th century, often quite successful, was to give someone a reputation for having a lot of gastric problems. So you would feed them a little bit of arsenic for a few days and they will be ill and the doctor will be called in, and then they will get better. And then a few months later, it would happen again, and they will get better. And you do that a few times, and then, oh, you know, poor so-and-so suffers so dreadfully with their digestion, has such stomach problems. And then, once you've given the person that reputation, everybody, including they themselves, thinks that, you know, they just have terrible digestive problems. And then you give them the bigger dose that kills them. Just seems very, very natural. They've already got this history, supposedly, medical history. If we get back to George Bodle and his case, you know, I joked about the housekeeper, Sophia, because, you know, she obviously was one of the people preparing the coffee that ended up being in the centerpiece of this. I'm not sure what her motive is. I just keep coming back to Samuel because I'm assuming Samuel still inherited everything. Is that what happened ultimately with this story? Yes, that's that's absolutely what happened, yes. I mean, he, he walked away from the trial, you know, pure as snow, and carried on with his successful running of the farm and his very wealthy life, bringing up his children. You know, he had sons who went into farming, following in their father's footsteps, ready to take over when the father retired or died, and just went on very successfully. Was that unusual? Because what would happen to Anne? Why not leave Anne the farm and just appoint Samuel or another male figure, which would have been very typical, to keep an eye on her funds and everything? Was she and the the other women in the house displaced after Samuel got everything? The money and exactly what happened to all of the money is not clear. There is no sort of clear records about that. All we know is that Samuel inherited not everything, but he inherited a big slice and middle John was disinherited. So we know that. And we know one of Samuel's eldest son also directly benefited Anne seems to have been okay. Um, I think she already had, unusually for a woman, some of her own money when George died because she was asked if she wanted to fund a prosecution. And there was a row over who was going to pay for the trial because at that time it wasn't always the authorities or the state that did it. Quite often it was the relatives of the victim who would actually pay towards the prosecution. Anne refused to pay and she clearly didn't want to see young John. And she said she didn't have the money. 
And then I think they looked into funds and said, yes, you do. You know, you absolutely do have the funds to pay for this if you choose to do so. What is the impact of this case, do you think, on forensics? And we know James Marsh used it as sort of a stepping stone for him to create a test, an accurate test for arsenic. Does this change anything for the women who who want to go on and kill their husbands, you know, with arsenic? Does this change the landscape of, of murder at all? It actually had the reverse effect from the one that it was expected to have, because when he first published this paper in 1836, his fellow scientists and the press were all absolutely rejoicing. And there were some extraordinary claims being made. People said, you know, this is amazing. It's groundbreaking. Some of them said, this is the end of arsenic as a murder weapon. No one will ever, ever dare to use it again because they now know that we can prove definitely that someone has died from arsenic, that arsenic was in this food that they were fed or this medicine they were given or whatever. And so it would be so much easier to finger the murderer that no one will ever dare use it again. Well, that absolutely didn't happen. What did happen was because we don't know whether the murder rate from arsenic went up or not. What we do know is that the detection rate went up. It didn't stop people trying it, but the detection rate certainly went up. And so it appeared that more and more people were being murdered, poisoned by arsenic than in the past. (laughs) And this is why so many women in particular were hanged because everyone was on the lookout. You know, ultimately, what I love about toxicology and what I like about your story is that I feel comfortable with toxicology as a tool. It has been peer-reviewed. It's been tested. It seems fairly straightforward. I could be wrong, but the National Academy of Sciences says this is one of the most reliable tools in the forensic science tool belt. So to be able to see it from the beginning in the kind of case that inspired a more accurate test, I think is remarkable. Yes, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think I think it really is remarkable. And I think to be able to draw a point to a date and say that really, if you can ever point to a date and say that was when something started, and usually it's much more uh, hazy and sort of subtle than that. But here you can sort of define when, you know, if you wanted to say that's when modern toxicology, the science of toxicology was born. I mean, I think that's a, that's a very good place to point to. And I just think also that Marsh is such an admirable character because there he was, he had no formal training, no special facilities at his disposal, no assistant to help him. He was all on his own in his spare time, but he just had this such imagination and such determination that here was a problem which really did, you know, it was crying out to be solved and he solved it. And then he disappears more or less back into obscurity again Hmm. because he's not, as I say, a few doctors said to me, oh, I remember being told about the Marsh test, but that's it. Nobody else knows anything about him or has heard of him. So someone eventually is held responsible for this. Is that right? I will put it no stronger than saying somebody is revealed as the murderer. Yes. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. 
This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.